1: Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. When you look at the way 2020 has played out in the gridiron, almost everything has changed relative to expectations. From the schedule, to the opponents, to the number of people in the stands, and more. But one element that stayed constant both before and after COVID upended our world was Florida's need and desire to beat Georgia and rise to the top of the SEC East. That happened this past weekend in Jacksonville, putting the Gators in the driver's seat for Atlanta and beyond in year three under Dan Mullen. On this week's show, senior wide receiver Trey Grimes stops by to discuss the triumph over the Bulldogs and the matchup against Arkansas and his former roommate, Felipe Franks. Then FloridaGators.com senior writer Scott Carter joins us to take a deep dive into where Florida stands at this juncture and the challenges awaiting them as the new top dog in the East. Finally, with the first ever November Masters upon us, we'll catch up with former Gator golfer and PGA Tour veteran Chris DeMarco. But first, the 2020 season reached a crescendo for the Orange and Blue in Jacksonville, beating Georgia for the first time since 2016 and delivering a critical win for Dan Mullen in the program. We spoke to senior receiver Trey Grimes about the anticipation leading up to kickoff and the meaning it held, which goes back long before Saturday at 3.30.
2: Well, the build-up didn't just start last week. Um, It started last year um, after that loss. You know what I mean? Um, Coming in, we knew. um, To get where we wanted to go, we had to get through Georgia. And um, that was just the the main message all year, all last year. um, After last year's loss, it was get through Georgia, get through Georgia. We got to win. And – this year, it was the same message, um, and we, have to get through, we had to get to Georgia, and that was the, the main thing that we wanted to do. And so we worked hard every week, um, and we knew that was our ultimate goal, was getting through them. And if we got through them, everything else would just fall into place. And So the message was just getting through them, really, and that's what we did, and we're looking forward to going on and winning out every other game.
1: You know, it's funny because when you talk week to week, and so if, if I had talked to you three weeks ago and asked you about Georgia, you would have said, we're not looking at Georgia yet. But when you've got a game like that, that is sort of driving you, even from like a year prior, w- where do you put that? Like, where does that mentally go while also being able to focus on the here and now, but knowing that bigger hurdle that, that's coming down the road?
2: Yeah, definitely. Well, each week we is is, is kind of like a... Um, a build-up game when you have those kind of rivalry games, you know what I mean. So uh, each week we go out there, we we focus on that opponent, but in the back of our mind, we know that our our main goal is is getting through our rivalry game, which is Georgia. And and I feel like uh you got to be tough-minded to know how to do that, um, because if you lose focus on that team that you're playing that week, they can come in there and, and shock you and, and upset you. But um, at the end of the day, you know, um, we all know that Georgia's our rivalry game, and and we had to get through them, and we did. And now we're looking on to Arkansas and doing what we got to do with them.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, obviously, the game itself had a a different feel. It wasn't, you know, 50-50 with 84,000. It was 50-50 with like 18,000. What did the game feel like? You've played in Florida-Georgia games before. Did it have a different vibe when you were actually on the field in the game?
2: Honestly, uh, yeah, there was a different feel. But um, when you're just playing, all that kind of tunes out. You kind of really don't hear or see none of that you're so locked in you're so focused on the game that you really don't really notice that there's a difference until the opposite team makes a big play or, or we make a big play and, and luckily uh our defense did a lot to keep georgia's fans down you know what i'm saying <laughs> so um, we really didn't get a, a different feel from the georgia fans because we were we were after the first quarter i'm pretty sure that we uh we did what we had to do and we stopped them and their fans and from there on out it was just smooth sailing and so it wasn't really a different field. We were, I felt like we had home field advantage, honestly.
1: Mm. Well, in terms of that first quarter, I mean, obviously the game, it couldn't have gotten off to a much worse start, right? You go down quickly, 14 nothing, And I yeah. know from, you know, from the fan perspective and just following along on Twitter, there's a lot of, oh man, here we go again. Mm-hmm. What, what was it like on the sideline in the huddle when you get down like that early? You know the history. You hadn't beaten them since most of you guys have been on campus. How did you not let that deflate you?
2: Uh, big thing, big yeah, prop star coaches, um, you know, they, they keep us in the game. They constantly were telling us, hey, just keep your head up, keep your head up. We're going to get rolling, we're going to get rolling. Um, the players, too. A lot of our players, you know, we never got down on ourselves. We never we never um, panicked. Um, we just stayed there, uh, held the rope, and like Coach Savage always says, don't let go of the rope. So we never let go of the rope, and we came out victorious.
1: When the offense got rolling, I know you said the coaches said it was going to come. When it did start happening, what did you feel like were the reasons for that? Was it something that was really evident in your preparation? Was it an adjustment that came once the game got going what did what did you see from your perspective?
2: Um, from our perspective, we know we know we were capable of um we've seen it all week in practice. We knew um that our coaches put us put a game plan together that was solid and it was gonna work and it was just a matter of time before we got rolling and, and got things moving and when things got moving we knew um, what was coming in the future. We knew what was going to happen. Um, we just had to stick to the plan, stick to the, stick to the grain, and, and that's what we did, and we came out victorious.
1: When Kyle gets knocked out of the game, and that's a scary moment for everyone watching. I'm sure it's a very disturbing moment for you guys as well to see a play like that. Um, what, what does that do when you see one of your teammates who's not only a teammate but a really important teammate? When that happens, h- how do you process that and keep going while you know that one of your guys you know, could be hurt pretty badly?
2: Uh yeah, it kinda lights a fire for all of us. You know, you don't want to see nobody get knocked out of the game, whether that's on our team or, or the other team. But at the end of the day, um it was a very important player for us. He 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 helps our offense out a lot. But um, like Coach Savage always says and our coaches always say, you know, you gotta be ready when your time is called and, and props to Kimora Gamble and, and Keon Zipper, they came in and they they held their own and they did what they had to do for for the offense. And uh we didn't we didn't miss a beat. We kept going. And um as you've seen uh, Gamble went down and scored and Keon had a very big play. So um, it was it was a, a good a good thing to see to see those those uh, players come in and do what they had to do.
1: When and you had your moment, too, I know, you know, late in the first half, that's a play that maybe earlier in the game, that pretty much exact play was called for a touchdown uh, to Kyle. Um, you know, when you're coming out of the huddle and, and you know, that's the call. I mean, that's, it's a huge play in the game. Can you take us yeah. through that moment for you?
2: Uh, yeah, it was a it was a very big play. Um, we, we called a play previous before that play, um, another go route that didn't get thrown. And we went back to the huddle and, and coach drew something up and put me on an island. And um, I remember before that play, I did a release that my coach didn't like. Well, he didn't like, but he wanted me to use a speed release. So he told me the next play, use a speed release. Um, I used the speed release, got by the defender, and then Kyle just threw a perfect ball. And I went up there, grabbed it, and it was an amazing feeling. Um, I actually I really didn't know I caught it until I seen everybody run over to me and hype it
1: is it because you you didn't know if you fell down in bounds or not until after yeah
2: I really wasn't sure why I fell I knew I I knew I caught the ball I just didn't, wasn't sure why I fell and then when I looked around I seen everybody running up with their arms up the line and everybody Justin Shorter was probably the first one in my face screaming I was like all right this is real like We're about to win this thing. Let's go do it. Let's go finish this out. So it was an amazing feeling. And it was right before halftime. And I knew we we got the ball back. So it was a a really good feeling.
1: You know, when it's all said and done, what does the win say about the program and where you guys are? Because that that was the benchmark, right? Georgia was the one holding you back. Now that you got past that, what do you think that says about where you guys are, big picture?
2: Uh, Big picture, it shows a lot. Uh, it, it, It shows more than what people think. Because if you think about it, we were down... Um, 14-0. So it shows that we're, we're a strong team. We're never going to um, hold the rope. But um, as, as a team standpoint, from a team standpoint, I feel like we're one of the best. We, compete with, we can compete with anybody, um, whether that's Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, anybody. We can go out there and compete with the best of them and come out victorious. Um, before this game, everybody um, was saying Georgia was this, Georgia was that, and we came out there and we did what we had to do. Um, and I feel like we can do that with any team in the country, and uh, we're looking forward to going out there and playing whoever uh, lines up against us.
1: Mm-hmm. So we're sitting here talking today but there could this might not have happened because you could have gone to the nfl last year and i know a lot of people were waiting to see what you were going to do and then ultimately you make the decision to come back to school can you talk about the the key reasons behind that decision and uh and how you feel about it today
2: uh definitely i'm 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 very happy with my decision i came back because i wanted to uh, you know finish this thing out i told my mom that i was uh going to do four years in college um, I also wanted to come back for me and uh, to win a national championship and to go on one of those runs that I know we can go on. Uh, last year we were very close to being able to do that and back to back two New Year's six bowls is something good, but I, uh, I definitely want to see how it feels to plan a national championship or, and um, win one. So I look forward to doing that um, and, and going out there this year and, and and going out with a bang.
1: Yeah, I read that, that you you told your, your family you were going to get your degree, and that was very important. What do you yeah. see that, down the road, how do you see yourself using that degree once football is, is behind you?
2: Um, you know, I want to do a lot of things. Um, my, my, my degree right now is I'm in education. Um, I like to work with kids, and I like to give back to the community. So one of the things that I want to do is I want to do, like, fundraisers and, and go um, show kids and teach kids things about life and... That's not being a teacher or being kind of like being a mentor to kids. Um, Maybe start an organization or something like that. I'm not sure. But I just want to do something that influences kids in the community and uh, help them out and and give them someone to to look up to. Hmm.
1: You you talked about this year. I remember when you I saw when you you post your statement, you said one last ride. Um, You're coming toward the end of that ride as we talk Mm -hmm. today. Um, I'm curious what what moments stand out to you when you think about your Gator career, both on and off the field?
2: Uh, Well, one of my biggest moments uh, I'll never forget is the first, my first catch ever as a Gator was uh, a touchdown uh, two years ago. That was probably one of my biggest moments. And the one behind that was probably be just this past week in that catch. Hmm. Uh, that was that was very, very spectacular in my book. And it'll probably go down in, in one of the best moments that I've had as a Florida Gator. I'm actually getting that picture framed as we speak <laughs> right now. So, uh, it's very it's, it's going up. It's going to get hung up on my wall and framed and all that. But yeah, I've had a lot of spectacular moments here.
1: How, how big are we talking? Is this like a is this like a statement piece or is this like a how, how big a frame are we talking about here?
2: a uh, pretty big frame um uh, pretty pretty big enough to cover a part of my wall so okay. my wall is big, so we'll just say that
1: i like that i like that yeah. um and, and this might be an answer to this question as well but uh when you think about the games that you've played in what are the mm-hmm. games you think about most often from your Gator career
2: um probably Florida Georgia that's one of the biggest games we always we, i think about um just because you know going into that game is is a, a statement game it's not like any other game um you win that game you're you're put on the map you're, you're that team so um i feel like that's one of the biggest games that i've always looked forward to and, and liked playing it hmm.
1: i have some off the field questions for you we have done these with a lot of your teammates trying to find out what you guys were doing when uh, everyone was locked down so first question for you what was your favorite new tv show that you discovered during the pandemic
2: new tv show that i discovered uh this show called the hundred uh, it's a show about uh I guess there's nuclear warfare that happened on earth thousands of years ago and the, everybody had to move to space and um, they sent a hundred kids down to earth to see if it was habitable again. And then they all had to figure out how to live on earth again. And it's a TV show on Netflix, yeah, it's a very good TV show. Oh wow,
1: I'll add yeah. it to the list, I'll add it to the list. <laughs> um, what about a, a favorite new movie that you discovered during the pandemic or maybe it's a favorite that you just watched a whole bunch of times?
2: Uh, I rewatched all the Fast and the Furious. Those are my favorite wow. movies.
1: Yeah. Wow. Even like like
2: Tokyo Drift, you went that yeah. deep? Yeah, Tokyo Drift. Oh, two wow. Fast and the Furious. Yeah, all of them. I watched them all. Those are my favorite movies.
1: That's a commitment. Which one's your favorite of the uh, the entire series?
2: Uh, the Fate and the Furious, um, Fast and the Furious 8. That's my favorite. I actually rewatched that last night. Oh, wow.
1: So you're, you're yeah. like, you're going along. As, as they get crazier, you're going yeah. along for the ride.
2: Yeah, definitely. Definitely am. Yeah.
1: What, so what are what are they going to do next? Like, what are you looking for? Because they're they're working on back to back sequels right now. So what, like, what do they need to do to get you to that level where it would top Fate of the Furious?
2: Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, the, the Fate of the Furious that's my favorite one right now. Um, I just I like the the driving scenes. So mm-hmm. um, as as we've been going on more and more in this this movie series, it's been getting more um, like fighting and explosive and bombs. <laughs> but I like seeing them drive and do crazy stunts and driving. And so um, definitely they have to put a lot of driving scenes in there with Vin Diesel and stuff.
1: Yeah, I think they I think they gave up on the car part of it about five movies ago. It's very yeah. entertaining, but it's not really yeah. about cars anymore. Cars anymore. Definitely. No. <laughs> um, what is the most ambitious meal that you attempted to cook at home during lockdown? And I'll let you I'll let you know. OK, the bar, the bar was set by I think Stuart Reese said he, he smoked a pork shoulder. I mean, so Stuart Reese was doing some high level stuff. That's the bar you got to clear here.
2: Yeah, I don't think I can clear that. That's can't I do I I really believe him because that's my roommate now. Okay. And I I see the way he eats and it's it's <laughs> something you'll never you'll never picture he eats crazy. Him and his little brother David Reese, they both eat like monsters. Wow, but okay. Probably a a big steak and potatoes. Okay. That's the yeah,
1: staple. You yeah. you can't go wrong with that.
2: Yeah, steak, potatoes and and some Macaroni and cheese and bread. Wow.
1: Okay. What ca- are we talking about? Are you like a filet guy? Are we going T-bone? What's the temperature? T-bone. T-bone. Um, okay.
2: Yeah, that's my favorite.
1: How are we doing it? Are we doing it medium? we going medium Medium. Low.
2: Yeah, medium. Okay. Medium. I don't like it too chewy. I, I like it just, just right. Medium is just right.
1: Just right. Yeah. See, it's, it's not that hard, right? It's medium. It's got to be just right. Um bringing things back to to the field you know this weekend is arkansas right and mm-hmm. that's a game that no one thought was going to happen before all this crazy stuff went down and it's funny because i remember when felipe transferred the talk was well unless they're in the sec championship game there's no chance he'd play florida and yet here we are um yep. how surreal is it that things worked out the way that they did that this is happening this weekend
2: uh, it's very surreal you know i'm, I'm happy for my boy. That's. That's like a brother to me. Um, you know, I, that was my roommate for a year. and Me and him, we we connected a lot. To see him go, was, it was something that I didn't want to have to happen. But um, I knew it was best for him. And not being able to reunite with him and see him on the field is, is going to be something special. You know, I, I did another interview and I said, this week is a, is a, a special week for me and, I guess, the team because um, we get to see our brother again. But after the clock hits zero, mm-hmm. right? when, when we're playing, it's, it's, it's strictly business. But once the clock hits zero, I'm going to run over to him and, you know what I'm saying jump and give him a hug and you know see him again because I we haven't seen him in a long time but like that's like my brother
1: What what's that relationship like why is that bond so tight between you and, and Felipe
2: uh that was my roommate for a year um you know everybody goes through things uh, in life and that was somebody that I you know me and him talked a lot about um just not on football but on a deeper level about life and stuff like that so he knows a lot of stuff about me I know a lot of stuff about him and I, I guess the bond just was built um, over time with him being my roommate and and me see, literally seeing him every day, every second of the day, whether that was at practice or if we was riding home together at the house, all that stuff. So um, I guess I just seen him every day for a year, year straight and, and the bond built.
1: Mm. In terms of that, you know, it's all business, then the clock hits zero. But I imagine that that is tough, especially for the defensive guys whose job it is to, you know, lay big hits on. There's He's wearing a red jersey, but not <laughs> like the red jerseys he used to wear.
2: Yeah, um,
1: yeah. I mean, how, how I know it's, it's easy to say, you know, it's all business, and then it's, when it's personal, it's over. But that, mm-hmm. that's got to be somewhat challenging, right?
2: Yeah, I definitely feel like it's going to be challenging for a lot of the players. Um mentally because at the end of the day that was their teammate for years and and a a lot of people looked up to him um but now that he's on the other side of the ball it's going to be a little I want to use the word funny weird I don't know it's just a kind of vibe that we're going to have to get over um but like I said we're going to go in there um with a business mindset and you know come out victorious then after after we come out victorious then all the, the other stuff can get taken care of
1: is there, a, is there any trash talk? Is there any, John, like, have you been talking to him regularly and and then it stops game week? How does that work?
2: I talk to him all the time. Uh, we actually play Fortnite all the time. Me <laughs> and my other roommate, David Reese, uh, we always play Fortnite with him. I talk to him all the time about football, um, stuff like that. So I personally am not going to have no trash talk to say. I might throw <laughs> a couple of jabs at him, you know, but nothing nothing to the point where it's crazy. Get out of control, trash talk. <laughs> just, just some friendly, friendly right. trash
1: yeah. Right, right. Um, so, you know, as you've started looking at Arkansas and seeing the looks that they have defensively, what do you think that your offense needs to do to, to continue rolling and, and having the success that you've had?
2: Um, you know, like I said, our, our coaches uh, are, are very good at what they do and they're going to put us in the right position to do what we need to do. So um, from our standpoint, I feel like the players just have to go out there and execute with the plan that our coaches put together and put in front of us, um, just like any other game. Um, like Coach Muller said today at practice, this game is bigger than the next than the one we just played because uh, we made it that way. Um, and, and we're going to be everybody's national championship game now that we play from here on out because we're the team to beat now. Um, so we just got to go out there and execute um, the game plan that the coaches put in front of us. Um, whether that's the run game, the pass game, special teams, you got to just execute and, and we'll be fine.
1: Well, Trey, thank you so much for your time. Good luck this weekend and we hope you have a, a great rest of your season.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate you.
1: Few games in college football carry the pageantry and unique energy created by Florida, Georgia, with 42,000 fans generally on either side of the stadium. But as Scott Carter noted in this week's roundtable, it remained an original in 2020, albeit in mostly unrecognizable ways from its storied past.
3: It was, uh, it was still unique, Adam, just in not the way we expected. I, I remember getting to the stadium and after I got to the press box. I was talking to another rider who I've known for a long time. I said, of all, the, of all the eerie moments of 2020 that I've encountered, I think coming into the Florida-Georgia game, Without any traffic whatsoever. <laughs> it, it was just the weirdest experience. And I wish I was quicker with my iPhone because in downtown Jacksonville, right, you know, within a mile or so of the stadium, you know, the parking lots, they still have a few parking signs. And well, there was an older guy, he's probably in his 60s, he's sitting there holding a parking sign he's flat asleep. I mean, there was nobody coming. He's sitting there in his chair asleep. I'm thinking, oh man, that would be a great photo if I could have gotten it.
1: Also free parking, right?
3: Yeah. Free parking. (laughs) Yes. Just to symbolize how different it was. Uh, You know, you get over to the stadium and obviously the festive atmosphere that we're used to, it wasn't there. I mean, there were still fans. Uh, They were not as many of them. There were still Half Georgia, half Florida. Just uh, another day of 2020 that I'll remember for different reasons. But I can tell you this, uh, as different as the atmosphere was, Adam, so was the outcome, which I know a lot of Gator fans are happy about.
1: Yeah, no, it had been a, a while since Florida had beaten Georgia, and, and we talked last week about it. It would have been the first four-game losing streak uh, since the 80s for the Gators. So this was obviously a hugely important game, not just because of what it meant for this season, but as we've talked about, sort of that, you know, that trend line. Where is the program going? Where is it relative to the, the competition? Georgia has been the, the big bad in the SEC for a few years now, uh, at least in the SEC East. And this was a big statement for Florida to say, hey, we're on that upward trend too, and now we've got the inside track to Atlanta.
3: Yeah, this was the game that Gator fans, uh, the media, uh, really people who pay a lot of attention to the SEC East. This is the game that they they've had marked on their calendar for a year, uh, because since Dan Mullen got here, it was clear after the 2007 season when Florida, I mean when Georgia, you know, beat the Gators 42 to seven, I started the process of Jim McElwain's exit and Dan Mullen's arrival. You know, in 2018. Uh, Florida was in the game for a while, but some turnovers in the second half hurt them, and they lose, I think, what, by 19, 36-17, if I remember correctly. In 2019, Mullen's second year, they closed the gap, 24-17, a good game for the most part. Gators just just didn't capitalize in some key situations. So, for them to take the next step after, uh, you know, what, 21 wins under Mullen in his first two seasons, a pair of bowl victories – you know, it was beating Georgia. That was the next step in this program's evolution. And they went over there, and, uh, you know, they get down 14 nothing before you even have a chance to get your seat warm, and you're thinking, man, this is a – where's this going? Uh, but it was so early in the game that you knew it could still be a, a totally different game than the first five minutes. And, and that's exactly what happened. Florida got its offense rolling. Uh, Georgia – didn't have really any answer there for most of the first half. And then, uh, you know, the Gators are celebrating on the field afterward, and Dan Mullins climbing up on the railing to uh, celebrate with some fans. So it was a different kind of scene than, than we've seen in Jacksonville since 2016 for the Gators. It was uh, one that now puts Florida in position – in the SEC East, if it can just take care of its business the rest of the way, Florida is going to be in Atlanta for the SEC championship game and in the hunt for its first ever college football playoff berth. And sometimes things, you never know how, if they're going to work out as the discussion centers on. And for Florida, that's been the discussion all season. Is this the year they could do that? And of course, it. It got sidetracked with that loss. Well, it got sidetracked first by COVID. Everybody's been sidetracked by that. Then it got sidetracked with that loss at Texas a and uh, But the the win over Georgia certainly got him back on track, Adam. It
1: well, also goes to show the overall theme in college football right now. Uh, and This hasn't been the case throughout history, but at least in today's day and age, great offense generally beats great defense. Now, in fairness, Georgia was down a number of starters defensively. Uh, but again, it, you know, it showed if you've got the kind of firepower that Florida does and the weapons that they have, and also, key point here, a quarterback who can make those plays, you're never really out of any game, especially when we're on the other side, they've got some real limitations offensively as as Georgia had.
3: Yeah, I really thought that for the first time since Kirby Smart took over Georgia, uh, it kind of really elevated that program in the SEC. And you know, really in the national picture, I thought Florida entered this game with a true advantage in the matchup, and that was with their offense. I knew, I mean, Georgia led the league in defense; they were only giving up 300 yards a game, but Florida was racking up, I think, you know, well, almost 500 yards a game. Something was going to have to give, and certainly, you, you're right. Georgia was missing some key players on defense. As it turned out, Florida ended up, you know, losing a couple of key guys on offense in the course of the game. So, you know, injuries played a factor on both sides. But bottom line is Kyle Trask and what he was able to do with that offense once they got in rhythm, Georgia really didn't have any answer for that. The Gators seized control of the game. I mean, they scored 38 points in the first half. Uh, That's hard to do any game, much less against the Georgia defense under Kirby Smart, which gave up uh, 571 yards, which that was the most a smart defense has given up since he uh, became head coach at Georgia and uh, you know I love those matchups Adam the ones that pit either a great defensive mind and offensive mind like this one did with smart against Mullen or vice versa and you just don't know how those are going to go sometimes but this one clearly went in the way of the offense which if you look at college football in 2020 uh, that's been the one of the consistent storylines and you know what Florida will take that the rest of the way because whatever the Gators do the rest of the season uh, it's going to be predicated on High-powered offense and how how well Cal Trask operates
1: it. It also oddly reminded me of that 2014 game where Florida ran for I don't know like a thousand yards with Matt Jones and Kelvin Taylor by running essentially the same plays over and over again that Georgia never stopped. Uh, this year, that was kind of what we saw with the the wheel route. So again, it was running backs for Florida just piling up yards but it was all on these these either swing passes or these wheel routes where Georgia simply could not stop no matter how many times Florida ran this same look out of the backfield the Gator running backs just dominated this game without really accepting a handoff
3: yeah i mean i i seek for the casual fan out there who who doesn't know a lot about the wheel route they got a uh, introduction <laughs> As a clinic. Georgia. I think there's more there's more talk about the wheel route uh, this week than maybe I've ever heard in, in football <laughs> history. Uh, but the Gators used it very effectively. They they saw some things in preparation that, that might be there. And sure enough, it was there. Malik Davis, Naquan Wright. You know, even, you know, you had two kind of similar patterns with a Gamble on a touchdown. So there's just, it was working. And you know what? Dan Mullen, there's no doubt. When he, he finds something that gets the offense hot, he sticks with it, which I've always thought's a sign of a smart coach. It always baffles me when something's really working for a team. It, it, this could be any sport, you know. It, if something's really working and it's easy for them, and sometimes they go it away, almost like, "Well, this is too easy. We need to show that we know other stuff." Right? Hey, who cares? <laughs> you know, I've always been one. If that's your team and it's working, keep going to it. Hammer. Force it, yeah. The, yeah, force the other team to make the adjustment, make the stop. You know, Florida did that with the wheel route, with using the almost all the receivers. I mean, you know, Trayvon Grimes had a great touchdown catch. We mentioned Kamari Gamble, his big catch after Kyle Pitts, who had a touchdown catch, got hurt. You know, Damian Pierce had a running score, and uh, Justin Shorter the first touchdown of the game for Gators that got him on the board. So, so Trask really distributed the ball, and he has a lot of weapons and. That's what makes this offense so dangerous. Not, I mean, he's playing at a very high level. That's where it starts. But he also, uh, you don't have to lock in on one or two guys. You can go around the field, and there's guys out there making plays for him. And uh, that's just something that we haven't seen at this level for a Gators offense in a long time.
1: Yeah, there's no question about it. Uh, you mentioned Kyle Pitts, and obviously that's a huge question for Gator fans and probably for the Gators themselves going into this weekend's game. Uh, he gets knocked out with a concussion, a really brutal, brutal hit, about as bad a targeting as you'll see. Uh, what is his status for this weekend? What do we know about Kyle Pitts in the aftermath of that game?
3: Well, you know, as of Wednesday of this week, uh, Dan Mullen said he is he remains questionable. You know, I, I, who knows if he'll be able to play Saturday, Adam? It, it's one of those situations where there's never more precautions taken now for potential head injuries. I mean, that was an old school hit, uh, Adam. That was the kind of hit that we used to see a lot more in football. Um, Lewis signed the Georgia defensive back. I mean, he clearly was going in there to crush Pitts. I don't think, you know, it was just one of those, in the moment of the play, neither guy had a lot of chance to react. So I'm not saying that, you know, it was intentional on his part. I'm just saying he was wanting to deliver a hit. Pitts wanted to make a big catch and Man, that was as scary as a hit as I've seen in a long time. I mean, when that first happened, even in the press box live, I was like, ooh, it just gave you like a little sick feeling at your stomach, and then you saw both guys struggling to get up. And the the first sign I always look at after those hits is, are they both moving? And thank goodness they were. Thank goodness that they both got off the field on their own power. You just hope that both guys – are able to recover. They take the precautions that's needed. And if Kyle Pitts can play Saturday, hey, that's great for the Gators, great for Kyle Pitts. If he can't, Dan Mullen and, and company, Brian Johnson, they're very they're very uh, satisfied that Kamori Gamble and Keon Zipper, by the way, who both had big catches of their own against Georgia, mm-hmm. will be able to uh, fill in that spot. I mean, Kyle Pitts, as we've talked before on this podcast, a very unique talent, uh, maybe the best tight end in the country. You don't really replace him but you can at least replace his production in the offense with what the Gators have on the roster.
1: Well, that's one story that people are talking about this week, but the other one, probably the the dominant one is the return of Felipe Franks. And This is something that I talked about with uh, with Trey Grimes is I remember when when Franks transferred to Arkansas, the thought was, well, Florida's never going to see him again. Cause you know, the only way you do it, is, you know, the only way you'd play him is in the SEC championship. And no one thought Arkansas was going to be in the running for that, but the fact that the schedule gets overhauled because of COVID, now not only is Florida playing Arkansas, but they're playing them in the swamp. So Felipe Franks returns to a place where he had a, I guess you could say, a tenuous relationship with fans, um, overwhelmingly beloved by his teammates, uh, but a divisive figure among Gator Nation, and here he comes back to Gainesville with an opportunity to, uh, to dash Florida's championship aspirations. It's, it's the kind of compelling story that, you know, sometimes you can't even write these things. They just happen.
3: Yeah, I'm going to have to look some stuff up on the internet on him. I'm not for sure a lot about <laughs> his background. But, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, Felipe Franks, he, he's a guy that we're so familiar with. And, he, you know, you he, he summed up some of it in your intro there. I mean, he, he, he kind of grew up in front of our eyes at Florida. You know, he, one of those guys who comes in, highly recruited, Uh, Took him a while to get his footing with the Gators. And and then he played a very instrumental role when Dan Mullen got here and turning around the program in 2018. And, of course, we all know what happened last year with his unfortunate injury at Kentucky. It opened the door for Kyle Trask, a, a player who came in with Franks and who competed against him regularly and who basically served as his backup for the last couple of years of Franks, career at Florida. And now look at Kyle Trask. He's, he's one of the best stories in college football uh, the last year. You're right, Adam, you can't write some of this stuff. Um, And then the SEC, the altered landscape of 2020 due to COVID-19 Arkansas suddenly is on the schedule coming to Gainesville. And I'm imagining the, The schedule makers up in uh, Birmingham, they're like, ooh, this looks good. Arkansas at Florida, Felipe Franks versus Kyle Trask. Let's do that one. And you know what? I'm glad they did because I love these kind of matchups. And I know coaches don't necessarily always love them because, you know, you know, Felipe Franks has some insider knowledge on Florida that no other player, no other quarterback in the country could have. (laughs) So, but, you know, that stuff happens regularly in the game with the the coaching transitions that happen all the time. Now Uh, it's going to be fun. I I think um, Felipe Franks legacy here. I think Dan Mullen said it best this week is that, you know what? He was very important in the turnaround that we've had played an instrumental role. Uh, The guy is a competitor. Uh, He is beloved by his teammates and coaches. Like you said, So many of these guys still maintain relationship with Felipe. You know, they still talk to him regularly. I remember even as late as June or July. I remember I went to Miapa down here at the corner of campus, and there Felipe was with some of his teammates. And you know, before he went to Arkansas and and joined his uh, his guys out there, so it's going to be a fun game. Uh, And he's you know, let's not forget about this. He's having a great season. Yeah. Uh, He's, you know, Arkansas is one of the surprise teams in the SEC. They're 3-3. Three and three. Uh, They're going to be without Sam Pittman, their head coach, a, a casualty of COVID this week. Uh, but Felipe Frank's 14 touchdowns, only three interceptions, I think completing about 67% of his passes. Statistically, uh, if he keeps this up, he's going to be, you know, by far having his best year uh, in college football. And you hope that, that that projects well for him in the future. And then on the other side, you got his uh, – Guy, uh, Kyle Trask, those guys are buddies, uh, competitors. uh, Who knows, man? Maybe we'll have a shootout Saturday, Adam.
1: Mm. Well, It's interesting, too, hearing from his teammates. Again, we talked to Trey Grimes about it, who is his roommate, very close to him. And he talked about what it would mean to him. But I'm more curious to know what the defensive guys are saying. Because this isn't like, you know, when the Williams sisters would play each other in tennis. uh, You know, neither one of them was trying to hurt each other, right? They were just Mm -hmm. playing. They were trying to win. But the process of winning did not involve inflicting punishment. So I just wonder how challenging this is, especially for the defensive guys, uh, that the thing standing between them and staying on this track toward the SEC championship is a guy that they have an incredible relationship with, but it's their job to crush him, right? I mean, it's kind of, it's a weird situation, but football is a violent game. And and these things, these matchups make it kind of, uh, kind of uncomfortable in some cases.
3: Yeah, I think the guys who have spoken this week, it, it, your your natural competitive instincts take over. You know, that you, the reason you're out there is to, to win and try to stop the other guy. Obviously, there's going to be nothing intentional. You you don't – you know, if they're on the bottom of a pile, they might actually let their elbow up against <laughs> Felipe instead of sticking it in the rim. That's just the way the game works. But, when, when, you know, Felipe is such a competitor. That's what they're talking about. If Felipe is running in the open field uh, – and, you know, Kareem or uh, Brad Stewart's there waiting to tackle. You know, Felipe, he's going to try to drop his shoulder, and pick up a few few more yards. That's just the way the competitor thinks and acts, and it's all instincts once you step on that field. So that, that's kind of the, the, the message that a couple of the guys have talked about this week. I mean, hey, you know, they're going to give him a hug, give him a high five before the game, catch up with him after the game. But during those 60 minutes on the field, their competitors.
1: And you mentioned Sam Pittman as a, a casualty of COVID this week. Well, let's be clear. He, he did not die. He just has COVID. He's a casualty. Yes. He's a casualty of this week's game. Um, but he's uh, by far not the only one. And the week started with that information coming out about Pittman. And since then, Scott, we've had just a uh, kind of just a, a domino effect here of game after game being postponed or canceled to the point where Florida is now one of the only games that's scheduled to actually be played this weekend.
3: Yeah, thanks, Adam, for that. Uh, as a guy who uses words <laughs> for a living, uh, casualty may have been strong, but Sam, <laughs> Sam Pittman did test positive for COVID this week. He's not going to be coaching in the game and certainly best wishes on his recovery. But that's just been kind of – that news came out early in the week, and quite frankly, since then, it's been a domino effect around the league. I mean, you're looking at, what, four of the seven games as of this recording have been canceled. So it just kind of illuminates, Adam, everything about 2020. You know, coaches like to use the day-by-day, play-by-play mantra. I think 2020 and COVID – it's really like an hour by hour, yeah. <laughs> minute by minute. I mean, I we I certainly hope after we get done here that nothing else happens where the Florida Arkansas game happens. But I think we've all seen anything can happen to Gators. have certainly had their their storyline wrapped around COVID this year. The good news is here that uh, you know another back to back week now with no positive tests with the football program. So that's great news. But you're seeing it at other programs. Uh, you know. LSU Alabama, one of the premier games in the country the last few years. That's on hold. Georgia Missouri. Uh, so that's just it's just the times we live, man. I, I wish that uh, I wish we weren't talking about that COVID so much because I'm kind of over it. You know, I know <laughs> we kind of talk about it every week. It it just it's factored in every week. So that's mm-hmm. just that's just their our world right now.
1: Yeah, and and what's what's really tricky about it for the SEC is that you know they built this schedule to allow for open weeks to make up games. But a lot of those have already been allocated, and now there's more games that don't have a place to go. So you're looking at a situation now where, take the Georgia-Missouri game, for example, that could actually be played the day of the SEC championship if uh, if Georgia is not factored into that game. So, I mean, you could have some really strange games happening at, at odd times of the year, even more so than we already have now.
3: Yeah, I mean, and, you know, who knows, maybe... they'll have to do it on a weeknight or something to get them all that. So I I just think as you, as you've heard college officials, ADs, coaches talk all year long, uh, anything is on the table (laughs) this year. Uh, It's been smooth uh, for, I think the first few weeks. And, but the last month has been very choppy for the sec and really uh, for college football. And uh, you just hope that they can, uh, they can get it finished out and, have a uh, playoff and uh, and put it in the books like uh, some of the other sports have, and hope that twenty twenty one is a lot better.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, speaking of events that are happening at weird times in the calendar, that leads us to our PAT today, uh, which I was inspired by the Masters, of course, happening this week, far far from the normal April window. Uh, but the Masters is one of those events. Obviously, I've watched it my whole life. I've never been to the Masters. I've never been to Augusta National at all. And it's probably one of the top items, if not the top item on my sports bucket list. So I'm sure you've checked off even more of those boxes than I have over your long career. But I'm curious what event or events
3: are on that bucket list for you? Well, it's funny you mention that, Adam, because as you do this longer, as as you've learned, you go to more and more places, you get to experience this kind of stuff and you know fortunately during my newspaper career I got to cover the World Series the Super Bowl I even went to the NBA Finals once I covered the Stanley Cup Finals the Kentucky Derby so I've been very fortunate that I got to go to a lot of events but I never never got to go to the Masters and so mm. as it would have i I'd never been to Augusta until last year they had the first Augusta women's amateur at Augusta National and so happened that a couple of Gators, Sierra Brooks and Marta Perez were in the field of, uh, I think, 30 on the final round. It, it was my first ever time at Augusta National, so uh, the Masters, by chance, it was the week before the Masters, so mm-hmm. they, they'd already set up the course for the Masters, and they were having this uh, event, and then the next week was the, the Masters tournament, and uh, they had you know great crowds out there, and I followed the Sierra Brooks because she was in contention on the final day. So I followed her all 18 holes. I walked around the course with her. My first day. I, couple of things, I mean, couldn't believe how many hills were on the course compared to what TV shows. I remember at the end of the day, my Fitbit had like 22,000 wow. steps. So I got <laughs> my workout that day. That's right. But, but I remember going back to Amen's corner and just watching that. And I mean, it's literally what well, it was almost like uh, like a drawing. You're sitting there looking at it. But it's almost like a painting it's so beautiful (laughs) the, the fairways and i remember just walking around that day thinking to myself you know it's been a while since i felt like this about going to an event you know uh when you as you do this longer and longer and you you're around athletes and events and coaches and all that 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 part of it's it just becomes what you do it's more about you know your storytelling and what you can Bring to the table to hopefully inform uh, or entertain people. But that one, I actually felt a little giddy inside, just being <laughs> at Augusta National. It, it, I remember calling my wife afterwards and saying, you know what, this was a cool moment today, one of those I haven't had in a while, to where it was something different and unique. And that uh, and was on my. It was one of those bucket list items for me, for sure. So I got to check that one off. If I had another one that I'd love to go to, I think I would love to go to Wimbledon once. Yeah. I've never... I've never done that. That's one of those events. I remember I was actually a pretty big tennis fan growing up in the 80s and early 90s, so I was watching Mac and Connors and Bjorn Borg and Boris Becker, one of those back-to-back Wimbledons, when I was about 15 or 16, and he was only like two or three years older than I was. I was thinking, man, it's, that's pretty cool. So I think that would be probably if somebody said, okay, Scott, you can check off any sporting event next for you, i, I go to Wimbledon.
1: Wimbledon would be a good one. Obviously the Masters, Kentucky Derby. Um it seems like you've done pretty much everything. You don't you don't have a lot of uh, a lot of holes in your in your, your bucket list there.
3: Well, you know, I still haven't, you know, been to like and covered a WWE WrestleMania <laughs> or something like that. But I will say in, in all seriousness, the Kentucky Derby is my all time favorite sport event to, that to have covered. Hmm. I, I love the atmosphere, the ambience, the tradition, the history, the access. I fell in love with uh, the horse race. And when I covered it for the Tampa Tribune and covered Tampa Bay Downs and they would have a couple of derby, I guess, tests, the Tampa Bay Derby and the Sam Davis stakes, the road to the Derby, you know, are all over the country and Tampa Bay yeah. Downs had a couple of those. And so you, I got into it and I, they sent me to the Derby like three straight years And it was just really one of those unique experiences that I I invested a lot of energy and time in. So I would say to you, Adam, if you get a chance, go. Well, I'm not
1: sure if the game will be at a a bucket list levels, but it's always good to be in the swamp. Uh, You will be there this weekend bringing people live coverage over on FloridaGators.com and on Twitter at Gators Scott. And again, be sure to check out the opening kickoff when that posts and everything Florida and Arkansas, the storylines. Uh, just in an abundance of great storylines that uh, that he'll be tracking this weekend. And then we'll, uh, we'll talk about next week. Scott, thank you so much.
3: Thank you, Adam. And just last thought, another bucket item list would be <laughs> to cover the Gators winning the national championship. Even during the 2020, I'd take it because when I took this job, I really thought that was going to be a chance I would have had before now. So maybe this is the lucky year.
1: The time is now. The yes. time is now. Yes. Speaking of the Masters, this week sees a most unusual 2020 staging of golf's signature event, so much so that College Game Day will originate from the traditional spring staple of the sports calendar. Back in 2005, former Gator Chris DeMarco gave Tiger Woods a run for his money, nearly beating him on Sunday in Augusta. Zach Durlum caught up with the Gator Great this week to discuss that memorable weekend and much more, beginning with how he first came to love the Sunshine State.
0: We moved to Orlando in 1975, um, and I, had two, I have two older brothers. One of them is almost eight years older, and the other one is almost five years older. So when I was 12 years old, or not even, when I was 10 years old, my, my oldest brother went to University of Florida. I would go up there when I was 10, and then, you know, obviously my other brother went there also. So he one brother went from 79 to 83, and the other one went from 81 to 85. So what was it? I was... 11 years old when I started going to the games and going up there and I just fell in love with it.
4: Yeah. So what was it like going through? um, I mean, the coaching change and then what did, what do you remember about buddy when he came into the program?
0: Buddy Alexander was a savior. He he was the best. I was very raw. I was very natural. I had a lot of talent, but I I didn't know course management. I didn't, you know, I was, I had a temper, Um, you know, I didn't understand, you know, really how to play the game. I could play the game and if I was hot, I was great, but if I wasn't hot, I would get pissed. You know, I would turn a a 69 into a 73 with the best of them. And he taught me how to turn a 73 into a 69. He was more on the the mental part of the game, which I had never, ever even knew that that was part of it. Course management and things like that. It was just a a blessing that he he got. He he was so good. I mean, you know, he he would make us listen to Rotella and he'd make us listen to a lot of these guys and he was great. And I, I, like I said, I owe him a lot because he really taught me how to play
3: the game.
4: Uh, in 19, 1989, uh, the SEC championship for, for both you as an individual and, and the team, uh, what, what was that experience like given, you know, the program you kind of came into in Florida was a little bit down when you came in for you guys to win that championship in
0: 89? The group before us, so David Jackson, Adam Arbogast, Jim Schumann, um, they had a, a good run there, and they were really good. And we were young. Uh, Buddy's first year actually, like, the only – coach like four or five tournaments we made it to the nationals that year and we actually finished tied for second with like three other teams i mean we had a chance to win it we lost by like three or four shots and we had i think we had two sophomores and and three freshmen that that year so pretty amazing stuff to the truth that we were able to do that and we were good but we were coming kind of coming into our own because we were still kind of young and they lsu was ranked number one they had david Tom's, frederick lindgren they had a bunch of great players and we drilled them. We beat them by 16 shots. That was a big confidence builder. You know, obviously, to win the SEC individually was was pretty cool too. So <laughs> I got on a run there my senior year in the spring. I think I won five of seven tournaments in the spring on five of eight tournaments. I got on a little hot streak.
4: Yeah, you know, 1990. Yeah, you got you got hot, and like you said, you had it to a T. You won five of eight tournaments. SEC Player of the Year, uh, and at the national championship that year, I mean, you guys had the lead going into the last day and, you know, Phil Mickelson, blast from the past for everybody, you know, shoots a 66 to come out of nowhere and yep. propelled Arizona State. I mean, was that tough for you as a senior given, you know, kind of like with the SEC championship, given where the program started and where it was, you know, at your senior year? I mean, was it really just kind of heartbreaking for you to get so close uh, and leave without that championship? It
0: was, it was, you know, we, we worked so hard. We wanted to get everybody Buddy. I, don't, I think Arizona State was actually like in fourth place going into the last round because I don't think we, we did not play with them. They played like a wave in front of us. And I think we had them by, I want to say we had them by 11 shots. And I think, I want to say either we shot either two over or even the last round. And they, they shot like 11 or 13 under to beat us by two. Um, it was heart wrenching for sure because we were really good that year. I think we had an individual winner in almost every tournament we played that, that spring
4: you turn pro you Q school back in the day. I mean, it's, it's obviously nothing like it, you know, like today, like it was back, you know, back in the nineties uh, you know, even through the early two thousands. I mean, do you have a great Q school story from, you know, from being out there?
0: Well, I do have a funny story. So my first Q school ever was um, in, in the, the fall of 1990 and I made it through first stage pretty easily. But my second stage I did at Jacaranda country club down in South Florida my grandparents lived down there. They lived in in Fort Lauderdale. So my my grandmother was going through cancer at the time. They, my dad said, "Hey, do you mind if they, you know, follow you?" And I said, "You know what's perfect? I can put my clubs on the cart. I'm going to walk. All they got to do is drive the cart. You know, I'll tell them where to go. And you know, and they can watch. And you know, they're not going to say anything. It's great. So the first round, I get out there and I make the turn. I think I shoot a couple under. I you know I'm, I start on the back. I'm going to number one. And they go to the halfway or the halfway house or the clubhouse, and they're like, "You want anything?" I said, "Just get me a Gatorade." I grabbed my one iron. I knew that was what I was hitting off the tee. And I went over, so I hit my shot down the fairway. And I wait, and nobody's there. The guys in my group had hit; they're on the green putt, and I'm like, "What is going on?" I I send another guy in the group, another caddy, go back and look for them. They're inside, sitting down, eating lunch. They thought they thought that's what you did at the turn, but they had my clubs on the golf cart. I proceeded i think i made a bad bogey in that hole because i was so nervous and, and a wreck because i didn't know if they were going to come you know i called my dad up and said listen dad i love having them out but you need to call them up and just tell them that you know this is my job this is what i'm doing you know if i miss this i got nothing next year and so he called him up and i'll never forget so i'm playing on the last round and i birdie like 11 12 13 and 14 to get comfortably in you know to where i don't have to worry about it and i could bogey all of them and they were not real hard holes so I look over and my grandpa's behind a tree and he's kind of like sneaking out looking. He'd been following me the whole time. I didn't even know it. He watched me the last three and a half rounds. So I brought him in and said, come on and walk with us the last couple of days. But it was, it was weird. We're not having those clubs for about 10 minutes. I was freaking out.
4: In that early stretch of your career, you know, 91 to 97, you, you know, you bounced around between, you know, Nike tour, Hogan tour, uh, the PGA tour. I mean, just put into perspective, the, the difficulty of, not just gaining your, your tour card, but actually staying on the tour You know, once you get there. I mean, how hard is it just to stay on tour and maintain that full-time status?
0: It's really hard unless you are a really good putter. And I mean, and I say that, like everybody on tour is a pretty good putter, but I was not a great putter. I mean, I, I was streaky. When I got hot, I made everything. But when I was bad, I was bad. In 1995, when, that's when I went to the Claw, I mean, Skip Kendall showed me it and it was immediate turnaround. I, I had lost my card that year You know, I was playing this golf course at home and I would shoot anywhere 71 to 73. I'd hit 17 greens and I'd miss 11 putts inside 12 feet. And I mean, I tried it. I had like a five footer. I knew that I, I wasn't going to make and I tried it and it was like free. And I was like, holy smokes. I haven't had that feeling since I'm 10 years old. Overnight, I went from shooting 72, 73 to sixty-four, sixty-five. like it was nothing in 96. I didn't have anything. I had already missed tour school because I started in December with the Claw, so I had already missed tour school. But I went up to Atlanta and I qualified for um, Atlanta. I qualified for Ground. I qualified for Honda that year, all in four spot. So I knew I was moving in the right direction. And then because of 92, I won the Canadian Tour Order of Merit in 92. I basically was exempt up there, so I was able to play on that tour. So I got to play the last five or six events, and I ended up winning one. And then just from that on, from, from 95, 96 on, I played good at tour school in 97. I was, I think I was one shot out going into the final round, which would have been the sixth round and they had terrible weather and they canceled. Basically I played seven holes and they canceled tour school. You know, I had to go back to the Nike tour and had a good Nike tour. I won on the Nike tour that year in 97. So really in 98, I was, I was ready for the PGA tour at that time. I had already had two, I was on my second child feeling a lot more comfortable out there, especially my putting, you know, knowing that I was going to putt good every week. And when I had great putting weeks, I was going to contend. I just kind of worked my way back in the right way and started getting in contention. And, you know, again, it's just about being comfortable. I mean, it was, I got really comfortable out there. When you get comfortable, you can play your best golf.
4: Augusta National itself, what makes it so, so special? And then give me, you know, a couple things that are really hard for folks to uh, understand about how impeccable uh, the course is from watching it at home and how challenging it is.
0: Yeah, I mean, what makes it so special is just the history. Uh, It's the only major we play every year where it's the same venue. So, you know, I mean, yes, the U.S. Open's fantastic. It's one of my favorites. But, you know, it's a different venue all the time. It's not the same one. Where the Masters, it's the Masters. You play Augusta National – and that's it. And everybody loves it. And it's just amazing. So if you've never been there, TV does it no justice as far as just the elevation in the greens, just the different mounds. You get up to that 14 and you look at the front of the green, you're like, wow, that's unreal. And, you know, just the intricacies of the golf course. What I always did so well with it is my imagination was really good. I mean, everybody on tour is good. I mean, I'm not saying that, but I've always been a really good putter on fast, fast greens. And for some reason, I always putt better when I don't have to aim at the hole, when I just kind of aim at a spot and just kind of use... Just think about speed the whole time you know sometimes when you get focused on the hole so much it's hard to hit a good stroke so for me because the greens were so fast and there's so much undulation and there's so much break in them you know you're never really putting straight at the hole unless you've got a straight uphill putt. so you know i just always put it good there except for one year one year i didn't putt good but other than that all the other years i played there i put it great so it just was one of those courses that fit my eye and it's just a, such a special place i mean you know we can all remember the unbelievable things that have happened there you know jack making a putt in 86 fuzzy zeller winning his rookie year i mean there's just a tiger's chip on me vj making his putt mark ramire making his putt i mean you can go back whatever year it is you say who the winner is and you can think of at least one or two memorable shots that they hit that sunday which made it all
4: oh5 masters you know rainy first three days but you built a huge lead I mean was that some of the best golf that you you'd ever played when you ran out to that lead through the first three days
0: yeah I mean that was I mean I shot I think I shot 67 67 I think I, I shot 33 on the front that afternoon on Saturday and we were walking in number 10 and obviously there's no excuses but I mean the way that I was playing that week i I, I think if we were able to finish the round on Saturday I think I would have been really tough to beat that day I just maybe two or three other times ever been that comfortable on the golf course i mean my putter when my putter was working like it was that week i mean i was making everything i was chipping good i was doing everything unbelievable driving it great my iron play was unbelievable i shot 41 that morning to finish my round to shoot 74 and it happened so fast and i went from having a three or four shot lead to being three shots back and i knew i was playing some unbelievable golf so i just i knew that you know obviously i was I had a daunting task. I got, you know, the greatest player in the world with a three-shot lead at one of his favorite places in the world that I had to pick up three shots. So I knew that I couldn't get it back in the first hole. So I had been working with um, Gio Valiente a bunch, and I really owe him a lot because he was able to keep me in the present, not get ahead of myself. You know, after that round, we talked, you know, in the morning before the last round. And, you know, one thing we were working on is is expect the unexpected. So, you know, I was able to put that morning round into perspective and think about it and go, okay, that's over with. There's nothing we can do about it. Let's just go out and do what we have been doing these last three days. And, you know, I was able to go out and hit some unbelievable golf shots and just play some great golf. I mean, the front nine, I mean, if you go back and review the front nine and the putts that I hit, I mean, it was amazing how many putts went like right over the hole and lipped out. I mean, it was, it was shocking how many putts I had. I mean, number four, I think I, I know I lipped out on four pretty hard. I lipped out on five, made a good par on six. The only, but I think I didn't hit a good putt on was three other than that I mean I was in complete control of my game and then obviously when we made the turn I made a big putt on 11 and at that point it was basically a two-man race I mean I think we were five six maybe even seven shots ahead of the field so it was just about me playing him and at that time it was more of a match play s- scenario and I hit a great shot on 14 to about a foot made birdie and I know on 15 um I got a 225 yard shot Tigers up there hitting a nine iron and I, I, I watched the thing and, and Landy's like, how can he lay up when he's, you know, one back at the Masters? He's got a chance to win because of my lie. It was a down slope. There was no way that I could hit a two iron high enough to hold the green. And if I hit a three wood and if I smashed it, I could hit it in the back water So it would have been a one in. 10 shot for me to probably get it up there around the green and everybody knows where the pin was that day even over the green would have been a tough chip especially if you're like 10 yards over so I lay you know I laid up to my yardage I laid it up way to the left left myself a perfect number like 90 yards with a, and I had a lobbage in there four feet and made birdie and you know he two putted for birdie so no harm no foul and then obviously we went to 16 and then it was the iconic chip that he hit but still um you know I had, I had a great shot in there and I had the honor of going into 16 and I hit a beautiful shot in there about 15 feet right underneath the hole and he hit um, maybe one of the worst shots I've ever seen Tiger Woods hit. I mean, it was just a dead pull hook, you know, just a, a bad shot on his part, but then he made that unbelievable chip. And I think you could give him probably, a thousand more balls. And I don't know if he could ever do it again. It just, you know, it's Tiger Woods in the biggest moment. And that's what he does.
4: I have gone back and watched that final round. And I mean, you were throwing enough darts, you know, to be able to talk some smack to Tiger at the turn. I mean, (laughs) and and to have the confidence to do that too. I mean, that just speaks to where you were at. I mean, what was it like, you know, just kind of going back and forth with him, you know, a little bit of uh, a golf jawing out there.
0: You know, it's, it's hard Cause he's so businesslike and he's so focused. I mean, it's unbelievable. So, and I'm a talker, it's kind of like tiger is Jack Nicholas. And I'm a little bit, a little bit like Lee Trevino, obviously I don't have the career that Lee Trevino had. He's one of the greatest golfers to ever play a game, major winner and all that. But I like to kind of, my nervous energy is to kind of talk and get it out and, and, you know, be able to go about my business before that last round, we were the only two on the range and, and, you know, he, he's obviously a big Stanford Cardinal guy and I'm a huge Gator fan. and I was. Um, you know, I'm on the range and the Gators had won the national championship in basketball on that Monday before. So I took a golf ball out and I wrote go Gators on it. And I flipped it down. He's about 40 yards to the left of me. And I flipped it down. I hit a perfect little shot in there to skip right up to where his, his pile of balls was. And I see him pick it up with his club and I see him pull a Sharpie out of his back pocket and he scratches out go and he writes the Gators on it and he chips it back to me. Um, so that was a nice little a moment of levity before we were going out to play the last round. I still have that golf ball. He doesn't sign golf balls, but that one I still have. It's pretty funny to tell you the truth. And you know, that was good. And when we were walking down number 11 or number 10, I forget what hole it was, but I did say to him, I said, so are you tired of getting, are you tired of putting first? And he kind of gave me a little F U little, little look and you know, but that fired him up and that got his juices going. And he love, I mean, he loves that's what he lives for. He wants that, you know, he wants to, he wants somebody to push him. I mean, that, he, that, you know, he said it more than once. I mean, his drug is being contention, you know, in a tournament to have a chance to win it. And especially in a major.
4: On 16, I mean, you go from, you know, having a great chance at birdie, looking like you're going to tie, uh, you know, tie for the lead, given where Tiger's at and all of a sudden he delivers, you know, this iconic chip that becomes one of the most famous shots in golf history. I mean, in the, you know, the immediate seconds after that kind of happens, I mean, was it Was it a shell shocking thing? And I mean, what's kind of going through your mind as that happens?
0: So I had the best position. I was standing below the bunker on the left, kind of just above the water. And again, you know, back to Gio Valiente. I mean, I literally in my mind was kind of processing what could happen. You know, he could flub this chip. He could make a double. He could hit it up on top and not two putt coming down. You know, I could go from having being one down to potentially one up, then maybe two up potentially if he makes double and I make birdie. Um, and I'm playing everything out. And then a little bit in my mind, I, you know, he could make this. So let's be prepared for the, you know, the, the huge roars and everything like that. And let's um, be prepared for that and, you know, make, focus on our putt. So I was, you know, although it was maybe 1% of my thought process, but I did have that play in my mind that he could make that shot, but you know, it, it was, it was an iconic shot. And I mean, it's Tiger Woods at his greatest moment. I mean, I think if you look back at, some of the greatest shots in, in all of golf history. I mean, you, you go back to, you know, Jack Nicholas and you go back to Tiger Woods and you go back to just the greatest players to ever play the game. They just step up in the moments and they, you know, everybody that wins on the PGA Tour is that guy that wants the golf ball but or wants the ball in that situation. But those guys have a special effect. I mean, um, it was you know, it just shows the greatest players. That's what they do.
4: You know, have you ever figured out how the chip on 18 t- to win it outright stayed out of the hole? Have you ever figured You know, out?
0: I, I have, when it was on during, it was on during the summer, they replayed it. I think it might've even been during a, a master's week. I think they replayed both Oh four and Oh five and I've slowed it down and that ball looks like it is like down. It almost looks like there's a little hand in there saying, Nope, not today. And even my second chip, I mean, how that ball just needs to break two inches to the right. And it goes in, um, you look at it and you think of Larry Mize, I mean, his butt was probably, or his chip that he hit was going easily that hard and it hits right in the middle of the hole and drops in. And, you know, again, I guess it's, you know, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And it just wasn't meant to be for me that day.
4: And you had a couple other chances, uh, you know, at major championships in your career. And I mean, does, do those near misses at majors, I mean, do those still, you know, sting even today or are you sort of at peace with, Uh, with how your tour career played out and and that you were really just kind of it was just a thrilling thing to be involved in those tournaments the way that you were
0: well I will say this I will say that the Masters and the British Open in 06 I have zero regrets because I made birdies down the stretch in both of those tournaments to win the golf tournament have a chance to win I didn't make any bogeys that I regret going wow I made the bogey on 17 I make par there you know, I didn't let my nerves affect me in those two tournaments, and I and I had to pedal down. I just playing against the greatest player to play in the 0-4 PGA, where I lost in a playoff to Vijay. I was an hour, maybe even more, ahead of the of the last group, and I think I shot either 70 or 71 the last day. I mean, I didn't even shoot that low. I mean, I think I was five or six shots back on the last round. So my goal that day going in was to make the Ryder Cup. Um, I was right on the cusp. I knew that if I finished, you know, top five, top four, I would get, you know, top, even top eight or whatever. I think I would finish in the top eight where there'd be no choice. And, you know, I, somebody wouldn't have to make a pick on me. And <clears throat> I hit that shot in the last hole. I had a great six iron in there about 15 feet right underneath the hole. And I put a big fist in the air because I knew that solidified the Ryder Cup for me and not even thinking about winning to tell you the truth. I mean, because I really wasn't looking at the board. I just was kind of just you know, get it in. Let's try to make this. And I had a 15 footer. I left it maybe four inches short dead center. So that might be the only regret that I have in a major was just hitting that putt a little bit harder. I mean, I'd rather have knocked it three feet by and missed it coming back. If I knew that that putt was going to have a chance to win the golf tournament. Um, and you could tell, cause the chip, I hit in 05, it was not going to be short. I wasn't going to leave it short. I was going to give myself a chance.
4: And then we're just going to wind down and get a couple of what we, uh, what we're calling our pandemic picks. And so these are just kind of some fun, you know, some fun, curious questions, but favorite TV show or movie you discovered during sort of the early phase of, you know, the quarantine and the lockdown.
0: Ozark TV show. Um,
4: That was great. Awesome show.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then movie. Gosh, I'm trying to think. We really, we watched so many shows. We really didn't watch any movies. Uh, You know, out of the ones that like the recent ones, I would say, I, I really enjoyed The Invisible Man. I thought that was a pretty good little, thriller movie but we really haven't watched too many of them yesterday was a great movie i don't know if you saw that about the beatles that was i love that movie just the music and that was amazing bohemian rhapsody another great one i mean i didn't realize how great queen was i didn't realize all the songs they sang and how i mean how unbelievable freddie mercury was i mean un, unreal you look back at that story and it's just it, it, it's crazy it really is
4: if you could pick anyone on tour to quarantine with uh, who would it be and who would a couple of your friends from the tour, you know, be that are definitely not making the cut for that?
0: J.J. Henry, I would pick in a heartbeat. Him and I, we love college football so much um, on the regular tour. I would pick him because he's just such a I mean, we would we'd watch sports 24 seven. He's a huge Yankee fan. I'm a Yankee fan. Um, and on the on the Champions Tour, I would say, you know, David Toms, um, Tim Heron, Tom Gillis um guys just like to have fun Doug baron you know guys that you know these are the guys that on a sunday night after after the round we'll go to the lobby bar at the hotel we'll, we'll have some beers you know and just chill and have a good time and and um you know just chill and then that I, the least that i would want to quarantine with oh goodness i oh, definitely patrick reed yeah, you, you no chance with that. <laughs> I saw a good meme the other day. They said some people hate Trump, some people hate Biden, everybody hates Patrick Reed, and that's not far off. He's not my fave. Uh,
4: and then the the last one. Where was the last place you paid greens fees?
0: That's funny. Um, the last place that I paid green fees, and this was when I was. It was a place in Orlando called Rock Springs Ridge, and. My brother actually lived on the course and for some reason the pro had something against me. I want to say I was definitely top 20 in the world at the time. He made me pay 16 bucks and I didn't, you know, I don't ever, when I walk into the pro shop, I don't ever, I expect, I always put my card down and like, we gotcha. I don't ever expect it. Trust me ever. I would never do that. When I'm done with my round, I go in and always thank the professional for having me out there. You know, it's just, a it's called professional courtesy. And um, you know, you just, on, on both ends. Uh,
4: and and lastly, is there a, a a charity or foundation that you manage that you want to let folks know
0: about? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I do one called the Rich, or the Norma and Rich Tee Up for Life Golf Tournament. Um, this would have been the 20th year. We are a little over $8 million raised for Cancer, American Cancer Society. Um, it was my mom and my dad's, um, you know, passion. They came to me in 2000 and said, hey, do you want to You know, do you want to put your name on a tournament? And originally it was the Chris DeMarco TF for Life. And I think after the third year, we started incorporating celebrities. We have celebrities that come in. We get anybody from Albert Pujols, Johnny Damon, you know, Dr. J. Uh, We have a bunch of local celebrities, um, you know, TV personalities in in Orlando that we used to have. I I hosted in Orlando at the Country Club at Heathrow, which I grew up in. That's where I played for 35 years. And it's something that's totally near and dear to my heart. We raised somewhere between... 320 and 380,000 almost every year. It's the same people. They come in, they put their money in. I think I want to say we've had probably 70% of the teams that are still playing have played every tournament. My mom passed in six. We named it after my mom, Norma, and then my dad passed in 17 and we made it both of them. So it's, it's just a, uh, what we can do for the little community there in Lake Mary and just for American cancer society in general is, is pretty special. So we're able to allocate where, where the monies go to and, it's pretty amazing what we've been able to do in in this little kind of mom-and-pop run
1: tournament, and it's something that's definitely near and dear to our hearts. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Florida and Arkansas kick off under the lights of the swamp on Saturday at 7, and you can follow the action on ESPN and the Gator Sports Network from Learfield IMG College. Then be sure to come back here next Thursday for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Stay safe and go Gators.